Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in a job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Amy Stein, welcome to the show. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. The reason you're here is because you have a super unique perspective on a world that everyone in the startup world touches on, which is HR, human resources. You've been doing that for 15 years or more um, in various uh, various organizations. And I knew how helpful your, your experience was to me when I needed it. So I figured this would be a great gift to our readers. With that, I'd like to uh, start with something a little bit more basic, and that's who you are, what do you do, and why do you do it? Wow. That, um, I should have that right off the cuff, shouldn't I? It should be the easy answer. <laughs> be quite good. Um, well, uh, we've rebranded HR. We don't call it HR anymore. We call it people operations now in, in okay. uh, the trendy world, but I'm happy to still be seen as an HR professional. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Um, my, my official job title is head of people. Um, I work for uh, an architecture firm in central London at the moment that does uh, very design-led, um, innovative, thoughtful buildings. Um, uh, And previous to that, I've worked in other architecture firms. I've worked in uh, fashion publishing at Condé Nast. I've worked in contemporary art at a central London gallery called White Cube. Um, And I've always worked with creative teams um, and tried to set up uh, people functions and people processes that 
that work with what the business is trying to achieve in the world. I don't come from a traditional HR background. I don't have an HR degree. Um, I came into HR through an operational background. I had owned my own business, run my own business, um, and I was brought in to an HR team to help the HR team become more connected operationally to the business. So my background is very much, I understand what it is to run your own business. I know the challenges that operational managers are facing. And whenever I'm creating people strategy, I always go back to what are the challenges that the teams are facing and let's make the people strategy match that. So a lot of what I do in HR doesn't feel like textbook HR because it isn't. I want to draw some comparisons into the startup world because um, I knew how good you are at what you do, given the advice you've given me, but um, I couldn't draw the parallels between doing people operations all for uh, for architecture firms or creative industries and then startups. Can you help me draw the comparison between these two worlds? So I think the, the challenges faced by startup is you often don't have an HR professional there. Right. So you need to be able to put your hands onto resources really quickly um, or have the right people around you on the end of the phone that you can call, know who to ask for advice for what. And I, I, I think that's, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have the resources you have in a, in a large organization. Yeah, right? I'm so, smiling because, yeah. because it's uh, half, of the, half of the solution is knowing who to, yeah. whose advice to yeah, ask. Exactly. Yeah, and, and I think in the conversation we had, and I think in a lot of startups this happens, you're having a performance issue, for example, with an employee. And what happens is you end up calling the employment lawyer because you're a little bit worried, oh, this might get into a legal situation. And you're, you're not going to get good quality advice about how to manage people from an employment lawyer because employment lawyers know how to get people in and out of court they know how to settle with people but they don't know the subtleties of actually how to avoid that whole process you want to manage it so that you don't end up with the lawyers but a lot of small startups would feel like well the lawyer's the person they go to for further people advice so that's always a really classic mistake right and then you end up in a confrontation that you don't need to be in yeah which which i've done and yeah. when i called you with that yeah. listen i'm getting this advice from a lawyer and you're like tal lawyers they they minimize risk that is their job they minimize the company's exposure but they don't think people first and they don't know how to create the win-win outcomes yeah no and because they just want to protect you. And that's what you're paying them for. Yeah. And if they didn't do that, they wouldn't be doing their job. Yeah. Right. So I think from a startup situation, is that thing about knowing who to ask for for advice, knowing what resources to go to. So what are good books to read or what are good websites to read and understanding, I think, that some of the misinformation that's out there about how to manage people. Like, for example, you know, my husband who worked uh, for a startup um dealt with this situation where there there was an idea that that paying people motivated them right so there's this idea like a, you know and 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 the founder would constantly be saying but i'm paying this person a good wage why isn't that enough you know and there's this great myth i mean one of the things you asked me to think about for this podcast was what well, you know what are some of the hr myths and i think there is this myth you know, if you pay people enough by default, that will make them perform. And in fact, it's a very complex relationship. The relationship yeah. between pay and performance is not that simple. It's not yeah. that simple, especially in, in startups where time is often a more valuable resource than money. Yeah. And if you can accelerate something or solve a problem with throwing money at it, it's sometimes the better solution, but it doesn't always apply well when it comes to people, motivation, performance. 
No, in fact, and sometimes it can have the opposite effect, right? So you, you have to be very, very careful where you go with that. What's the opposite effect if, uh, if, someone, uh, if I want to keep someone at a job they don't enjoy doing? Uh, I'm like, listen, I'm going to give you a 30% pay raise. Just keep doing that. How can that go wrong? Well, what goes wrong is that the, the message that you're giving that person is that it's a motivator, which is not about feeling a sense of purpose, right? And people need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. And being paid, giving them more money doesn't make them feel more engaged. It doesn't give them that sense of purpose. So what will happen often, and this is a real sort of, any person who works in HR will realize this, if someone's about to leave and you say, no, stay, I'll give you an extra five grand, on average, they will end up quitting six months later anyway. It, it just doesn't last because most people, that, that amount of money isn't enough to solve their underlying problem. If they're not connecting, if they're not feeling either recognized or they're not feeling that sense of purpose or they're not feeling a sense of control over their job, that's, you know, that having a sense of control over what they're doing is really important to people. So it doesn't last long. It's like a, you know, a Band-Aid solution. Is it, has it always been the case that purpose has such a, an important role in people's lives? Because to me, it could sometimes sound like some sort of those millennial at the workforce type thing. They need purpose, uh, you know, plant trees and they will love you for it. Well, that's social responsibility. And I mean, I'm, I mean, the whole idea of corporate social responsibility, I'm, I'm old enough to know how trendy this was in the 80s. It kind of, it kind of was trendy and it went away and now it's come back, which is, yahoo. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of it. I think it's great. But I think I'm not talking necessarily just about social responsibility purpose, which you're right, is very trendy right now. I'm talking about that feeling that the job that you do every day makes a difference and you know why you're doing it. And I think that's always been there for people. And most people will say, you know, what gets you out of bed in the morning? What, you know, are you hitting the snooze button every morning or are you jumping out of bed because you feel like you've got something you need to get done that day? That's hugely motivational for people. And I think it always has been. The wider, you know, are we also giving money to charity? Are we taking care of the environment? Social purpose does have a role to play. And especially with new people in the workforce right now, it is very trendy. Um, but I, I'm talking about a deeper personal sense of purpose. Got it. And while we're on the topic, it's anecdotal, but I think it's interesting. So let's see if we can if we can clear this out uh, really quickly. The situation in which an employee comes to their employer with a counter offer saying, "Listen, you know, I've been unhappy for a while. Whether they say it or not, I don't know. But uh, I've got this offer from uh, from this company. Mm-hmm. They're paying me, you know, fifteen percent, twenty percent more, and get a bump in my seniority. You know." You have to understand, yeah. either, either, either you match or I'm out the door. Yeah. Is that a common situation? Yeah, and the best way to handle that situation is to think about what really matters. So what really matters, what's underneath? If you're feeling happy in your job and that email from the recruiter comes in that says, so oh, do you want to meet for a coffee? I've got a job. If you're feeling happy, you don't reply to that email. It's as simple as that. If you reply to that email, it's a sign that something else is going on. So then it's a conversation with that person saying, you know, what, what's really, tell me, tell me about that. What are you missing? And often it will have something to do with they're being micromanaged or they don't see a career path for themselves or they don't have any hope or there's an unresolved conflict in the team and they just can't face they don't know how to deal with that conflict, so they'd like to run away from it. There's always something, just scratch the surface, and there's always something else going on. And that's why throwing money at it doesn't work, because you throw the money at it, and in fact, the underlying problem hasn't changed. 
and that's why it doesn't last. And, and not only that, but it can cause massive issues of inequity in the team, because what you don't want to be doing is sending a message to the team that says, if someone complains, then they get more money. And we go back to this issue of pay strategy. I mean, this, these ideas aren't original to me. There's some really great <laughs> thinkers out there. I would say read Dan Pink, if you're interested in Dan Pink? Vision. Yeah. And All of the books that you'll mention will be on the show notes, so yeah. um, Dan yeah. Pink. We'll do it. But there's, he's, he, he wrote a really good book called Drive that sort of made his reputation, his reputation has sort of taken off now on, on the back of Drive. And it is a good book. And he talks about these sort of drivers of motivation being autonomy, mastery, and, and purpose. And I think those are the things, even in a pay conversation, you want to be talking about. You know, what's missing with one of those three drivers? Something's going to be really wrong if someone's coming to you with a counteroffer. And unless you get to the bottom of what they want and really solve the underlying problem, then they probably should go. It's probably the best thing. Okay, but I'll be, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be a little bit more scrutinizing in that because I'd be interested in the employer's perspective. If a person comes yeah. to me uh, with a counteroffer, I could say I could I could be as progressive and empathic as you are, but I could also be like, what are you trying to do here? Like, this is leverage. I like if you want to work for someone else, go work for someone else and take it take yeah. it personally and immediately react to that rather than use that as a start of a new conversation. Yeah, no, and that and that's a you mean it's a fantastic point because I think what's happening in that situation again is a never take anything personally. I mean, I just, like, is that one piece of advice everyone can take away from this podcast? Never take anything personal. It is not about you. It really isn't. If someone comes to you, but, you know, and this is something, when you're a founder, when you've just started your own business, everything feels like it's all about you because it's your baby. You've just started it and it feels really personal. And these founders, and I've, you know, probably with the exception of Condé Nast, spent my career working with companies that are single owner founder companies. And it is can be quite hard to have that separation. It feels like you're not just quitting a job, you're leaving me. You know, and I've actually heard founders say that to me. You know, a, He's leaving me. How could he leave me? And you're like, for goodness sakes, you're not 16. It's not your first girlfriend. You know, it's a, it's a work situation. It's okay. But it doesn't feel, the emotions really get in the room. And I think, so rule number one, never take anything personally. And rule number two, if someone's having a conversation like that, it's a red flag. You know, it's the same kind of red flag that you get if someone's calling in sick every Monday. They're telling you something. They're not telling you directly. They're telling you they're unhappy in their job. Right. And and if someone's coming, if someone's looking at counteroffers, if someone's having conversations with recruiters, it's because they're not feeling satisfied in their job. And, and that's the real conversation you have to have and you have to fix. Money doesn't fix anything. And it doesn't if it fixes it, it fixes it for a very short term. Because the thing is, no matter how much you're paid, it never feels like enough. Yeah. How does coming a, with a counteroffer might influence that employee's chance to progress within the organization in later rounds? Does that put them at risk? Wow. See, I don't think it should. But again, it depends on how the conversation is handled. I mean, it depends if I'm giving advice here to the manager or to the employee. I mean, my advice to the employee is never have a confrontational conversation like that. What you do is you, you have a conversation and you frame it in a way which is saying, listen, you know what? I have had an amazing offer and here's what's important to me. Here's why I'm considering it because this is what's important to me. My first choice would be to meet this goal in this company. 
I love working for you guys. And I've had these exact negotiations where someone has come to me and they said, listen, I'm really excited about this because what you're saying to me is if I go into this job, I'm going to have the opportunity to manage a team. And you're not giving me that opportunity here. Does it exist here? Do you see a future for me here where I could ever be managing a team? And if I can say to them, yeah, I see that. In order to do that here, I'm going to need to see the following things from you happen. Like I'm going to, this is going to have to happen and this is going to have to happen. You're going to need to learn this. How could we get you to learn this? Well, we could get you to learn that if we moved you over to this project here, because you'd have the opportunity to learn that. And then I could see within six to eight months, you progressing into a situation where we could give you a couple people underneath you. You could start to practice. We could put you on the whatever leadership track development program. Then you'll have an emerging leader. You talk to them and then they say, okay, great. Now I feel like I can make my choice rather than feeling like you go in with an either or. So don't make the other person defensive when you're negotiating, but help them understand what it is that you're looking for. And money might be part of that. So you might say, and I'm under all this pressure, you know, at home, here's what I need. What, you know, what would I need to do to deliver more value to you? Like, you know, if I'm currently on 30 and I want to be earning 40, what do I need to give you in the business in order for you to reward that with 40? What does that look like for you? Then, you know, sorry, that would be my advice. For, and then for the manager, my advice for the manager is to say, don't try and solve the problem with money. Right. Try and solve the problem through another route because and I've done that and I've had people stay and be happy and had great careers in the company. So it's not about having a conversation. It's about how confrontationally you have it. Right. Nobody wants to work with someone who gets up their nose. It's right? like what you're describing. This is this is not news, no. but having the right words to say that. To understand that it's not an either-or situation, that it could be non-confrontational. It, it, it's the language that is missing. It's not the motivation. It's not the intent. It's sometimes yeah. the language and the understanding that there is an alternative route. And you said confrontational. I've been in situations where I, I've been confrontational in this, the same in these identical scenarios. Thinking back about it, it's because I didn't have the language and it's because of insecurities. But people don't always know what they want either. So the mistake, or I think, you know, maybe it's a self-awareness question because people don't always know what they want. And sometimes if you say to people, what's really important to you in terms of your career, they may not have an immediate answer for that. So in that case, solving that problem then sometimes becomes a longer, deeper conversation to say, okay, well, let's have a really good conversation about your career and what's important to you but I think people should never be afraid of negotiating salary they shouldn't be scared to talk about pay but you need to do it in a way that is understanding of what the other person's position is so you don't hold someone hostage in that conversation you don't walk in the door and put a gun to their head you walk in the door and you say you know listen here's a problem I'm trying to solve help me solve it so self-awareness in the workplace is uh, is huge because of course people are invested in their work they sometimes overestimate their contribution and their importance, they sometimes underestimate. So part of self-awareness is also the easy part of benchmarking. How much is yeah. a person with my experience in similar roles and similar type of companies make? Yeah. You, you're you're yeah. better informed. You understand the age bracket. There's plenty of resources uh, uh, to kind of get a benchmark for that. Fine. But what are some tips you can give people who want to have more or increase their self-awareness within work? on the more subtle, abstract aspects? Well, I think 
self-awareness is about being brave enough to ask other people for feedback. And I mean, we'll talk about the book list and you've probably read this book, but Carol Dweck has done a lot of work on this with Growth Mindset. And a lot of companies are incorporating the growth mindset um, into their processes and their leadership training now, which is amazing. Microsoft is totally on that bandwagon. It's You can read about what they're doing in Harvard Business Review. But I think there is this idea of asking for feedback. So when you've done something, taking it to your trusted confidence, whoever your colleagues are that you trust their opinion, and especially if you've got a couple that are you know, the kind of people that always complain about everything. They're really good to ask for feedback. They'll know. And they, they kind of see themselves as troublemakers. So they love to poke you with a stick. So find out who those people are who will poke you with a stick and ask them for feedback. Because mm-hmm. we all have our blind spots. Finding out what those blind spots are. Or, and also doing using reflection tools. You know, so you want to understand how did I do? There's a certain amount of self-reflection that can be really... Um, useful in doing that. So you just had a conversation with someone. After the conversation, you think, well, what percentage was that me talking or me listening? That I, I really, when I was listening to them, was I thinking about something else or was I really concentrating on what they were saying? How much of that conversation I can repeat? Yeah, exactly. But, you know, you can reflect afterwards and say, okay, actually, maybe I'm talking too much or maybe I'm not talking enough. So using a self-reflection process um, is a good way to do it. And, and asking other people for feedback is the classic way to do it. Esther Perel, um, the couples therapist, the business coach, psychologist, she caps the, she like breaks the conversation into short sentences that the other side can repeat and start by, by seeing that they can repeat. Mm. So two or three sentences max, and then ask that person, what did you hear me say? Yeah, that can be a huge learning tool for self-awareness. And you would be amazed. I mean, I'm always amazed with this. I mean, often I'm in a conversation with someone and I'll be like, okay, do you, did, did I, this is what I think I heard you say. And I'll repeat it back to them and they'll be like, no, that's not what I meant to tell you. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So that is actually what you said. And they're like, yeah, well, I shouldn't have said it like that. That's not what I was trying to say. Wow. <laughs> and, and the other person, you know, it's, it's learning for them as well to be, actually it's really hard to tell someone what really you think hard. accurately and often we're in multicultural workplaces now too i don't know what your last workplace is like my current workplace we've probably got 10 or 15 different languages on the go in our staff group wow. so you know expecting people to be able to express themselves really well in a language that isn't even their first language and maybe they've only lived in london for six months so they're still really learning english it complicates it even further. And right? add to that the lack of context because so much of the communication uh, that is captured in a face-to-face interaction, body language, tone, mm-hmm. is being completely made uh, made uh, obsolete for digital communication. Yeah, you're yeah. getting it on WhatsApp, you're getting it on chat, you know, you're in group chat. You're not you, you're really sure what someone's saying. And mostly I tell people, do not put it in an email. Just don't do it. If you've got feedback... About someone you know what happened in that meeting i'm a little bit upset about it do not put it in an email it's the worst way email is good for follow-up it is not good for initiation yeah yeah it's not good for initiation that's a that's a very very good point personal story i was working for um was working for linkedin at the time the company ran a big marketing initiative it was out of my scope but i supported it spent hours on that and the outcome of that initiative wasn't to my liking my customers didn't win 
I was very disappointed about how the company went about it and the marketing team, and they left me all the dirty work of uh, of letting the, the the unsuccessful applicants that they haven't made it. Very angry. I've written an email to the marketing team and I read it and I'm like, oof, that's a, that's a bit harsh. I'm going to take 24 hours to think about that. Mm-hmm. I came back, I added some pleasantries, I reversed the order, I toned it down and I sent it and I didn't hear back for a week. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, let's show them. A week later, I'm sitting down with my manager in a one-to-one and we're just about to wrap up. We're like two minutes to the end and I'm about to like close my notebook and head out. And she's like, oh, Tal, one last thing. I'm like, yeah. She goes, about that email to the marketing team. I'm like, what email? About the marketing initiative? I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Well, it made one person there cry. And I'm like, immediately my heart sank because I realized I've completely lost it there. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, uh, they shouldn't have cried because I was right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly they were in the wrong in that situation. She goes, listen, I, I don't know what to tell you about that, but it got to me from my director who got it from their director who got it from that team's manager who got it from that person who received that email. So this email had been read by a few people and you need to figure out how to fix that. And I, I didn't feel like I need to fix it. I felt like I was, uh, my, my, my rightness should be acknowledged. Um, I leave that room and... I can see that director, our director, across the room. It's an open space. And our eyes just kind of like locked. And someone grabbed me for, for a chat. And I'm like, I think I messed up. I need to go see see the director. And I go over to him. And he's just standing there. I'm, I'm walking towards him. He's standing put. And, and I can see a hint of a smile on his face. And I'm like, ooh, why is this? Like, what, what's going on? And I approach him. And I'm like, I fucked up, didn't I? And he goes, yes, let's have lunch. (laughs) (laughs) And he takes me down and he sits me down and he's he's like, what was that about? That's not you. That's not us. You know, I'm like, well, listen, I I was right because I was still convinced I was right. He goes, it doesn't matter that you were right. You know, it's not you don't change another person's opinion with with an email. I don't know many people who can write that feedback in an email and get it right. He coached me through the whole situation and with, with the one guarantee that I'll never write another email like that to a colleague again. It wasn't, it wasn't violent. It was just inconsiderate yeah. and not empathic. And what he said is, which really struck me was, think about that person and, and when they might be reading that. When you sent it, they just wrapped up another initiative. It was 11 p.m. That person hadn't slept in God knows how long. Everyone else is saying everything went fine, but they're stressed out of their minds because it's a highly visible project, da-da-da-da-da, and all of a sudden comes this guy who they know hardly anything about and gives out to them. I mean, you just you just tip that person over. And I didn't think that for. I mean... I didn't think that through. Email's too easy. That's the part of the problem, right? Is And I think you can write those emails, but you have to delete them afterwards, right? You're not allowed to send them. Sometimes sometimes you need to write it to process your own emotion, right? So don't, don't say to yourself, I'm not allowed to write them, but do say to yourself, I'm never allowed to send them. <laughs> write and delete. Wow. And learning to write and delete is a really powerful self-management tool. Right. Because you you need to you need to get it out. You have to. This is emotional management. Right. You need to get it out, get it out, write it and then delete it. Just never, ever, ever send it. But do find a way to talk about it. So this isn't to say, and again, you know, in terms of resources, I'm trying to put in as many as I can, you know, read the Kim Scott stuff on Radical Candor. She's got a really good website. She's got an amazing book. She's got a good TED talk. And she talks about, 
radical the idea of candor in work relationships, which is telling people when things aren't going right, you know, giving them the feedback that they need, but doing it in a way that is compassionate and that doesn't break them down, but that actually builds them up. And and there is a skill to it, you know, but there's resources like you know, her book and other resources out there that can help you do it. There's another really good book written by the guys from the um, Harvard Business Negotiation Project called Thanks for the Feedback, um, which is, again, a fantastic, fantastic resource for this sort of conversation. And it's a skill you need to learn. And every, every person, no matter what kind of company you're learning in, understanding that skill of how to give really good feedback is an important skill to learn. And I think, I think we should teach it in, we should teach it in schools. We should certainly teach it in, in business and everyone should learn how to do that. And I, you know, I've had colleagues who um, send me emails like the one you were discussing. I've received lots of them. And um, I have a really simple way of dealing with them. I delete them. And then a week later, when that person says to me, Amy, did you read my email? I say, no, I now automatically delete all your emails. I haven't read one in weeks. So I'm really happy if you want to talk to me about something, I'll sit down and talk it through with you. But yeah, no, I stopped reading your emails weeks ago. <laughs> and they'll be like, they'll be like, well, you, you're not allowed to do that. And I'm like, well, you're not, you know, yeah. And I'm like, well, I'm allowed to do it. And that's, you know, self-protection, right? And I, you know, I don't get anything but stress from those emails. I don't find them helpful. I don't find them useful. I don't think they're a good problem solving tool, but yeah, really help, really happy to sit down with you and talk through what the problems are. And then that changes the whole relationship because they realize actually that it's not a bat and ball relationship. They can't just pick you up and whack you across the office. You know, you know, I'm, I'm not your tennis ball. I'm an equal to you. We're an adult adult relationship and happy to talk it through, but I'm not happy to receive those emails. I just delete them. Solves the problem. And the problem with email is it sits in your email box. And when it's a nasty email, you can go back and reread it over and over again. So it doesn't just wind you up once. It winds you up. 20 times even if you just see the subject one sitting in your email box and you just look at it and then emotionally you have a reaction to yeah, it yeah it's so, a trigger yeah so there's a really good way to deal with colleagues who send emails like that and that's that's my method for doing it yeah. i just i just put them on i say to them at some point you know if you can learn how to write a good email i'll start reading them again but otherwise no that avenue is not available to you That's innovative. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my, and those, those actually were good work relationships for me. They, they, you know, for me, it worked because it gave me a forum to be able to talk to people about their behavior. And you know what? You gave, you gave people who, are, who accept that, they gave them a chance to save face. Because yeah. if I go back to some emails I've written, you know, I'd be embarrassed. Yeah. When you're out of the loop, when you're... When you have a better perspective and you take things in in proportions and you go back and you're like, "Ooh, that should not have been highlighted in bold yeah. 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 <laughs> this should not have been written in caps <laughs> I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who gets he gets emails from from you know people in her company that in the subject line, you know last Thursday's meeting bracket very upset and bracket you're like. Who sends emails? Like, I would just feel like right to the trash when I was thinking of like I'm not, I'm not and just saying, you know, like if you want to grab my attention, that is not a great way to do it. Wow. You know, really happy. But I think we need to be honest with each other. We need to call each other out on that behavior. And I think it's it's you know, if you want to be part of a good team and you know, wherever you work, you work in a little village, you work in a community. 
And work is a village. You have to work together. You have to sit next to each other. You have to spend 70 hours, 80 hours a week together if you're in a startup. You need to find a way to have those negotiations. And you, you can't treat each other badly. You know, you need to have good boundaries. You know, you have to imagine, you know, you're on a first date with that person. You're trying to impress them. Yeah. You know? And they'll be here tomorrow and next month. Yeah. Like it, it, it just the, the, the sense of, a, of, of winning in an argument is, a, I think, in work, it's hardly like it doesn't happen. You can, you can have your, your feature better prioritized, but you can't win too much when yeah. it comes to coexistence in a workplace. Yeah, no, I agree because it, it only works short term. So that kind of negotiation, if you want to have a hard-nosed negotiation with someone, do it in a relationship that doesn't have longevity. So if it's someone you're going to see once, fine. Be really hard-nosed with them, you'll win your negotiation. If it's someone that you need to see every day for the next six months, don't use that technique because it will destroy the relationship. We talked about that in other episodes about uh, when when looking for a job, then yeah. it's not just the outcome. Did, did you get the, uh, the uh, salary you wanted or not? It's about also how did you get that? Yeah, because you're setting the tone right from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so fine, you 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 you've you've proved the point. They're willing to pay you that sum of money, but will they enjoy now sitting shoulder to shoulder with a person who who negotiated that salary and how you did that? You have to get off on the right foot. I think that's really important. Fifteen years in a in HR roles, you've had to fire a few people. Don't, don't ask me to tell you how many people. I was about to ask. That's an embarrassing number. I was about to ask, and I'm like, you yeah. know what? Maybe, maybe, maybe not. I've been through many rounds of redundancies in in different jobs for different reasons, and so those are always big, chunky ones. You know, you might have a redundancy around thirty people at a time or sixty people at a time, so the numbers can add up quite quickly. I think, I mean, you and I have discussed this before with how to have a good exit with someone. Because I think in an organization, the whole team watches when somebody leaves. So it's a natural part of business life that people come and go, right? So the first thing is to understand everyone on the team understands. It's not unusual for someone to go. Sometimes they don't go voluntarily, and that can be a good thing. But the whole team is watching. So you need to ensure that the way that you do the exit is really respectful, because um, everyone will be wondering, will that be, what if that ever happens to me? How will it be handled? And if they don't respect someone at that really critical moment in their life, then they're not going to be compassionate with me when other things go wrong. You know, there's some really good writing out there at the moment about compassion in business and talking about having a workplace which is more loving and more compassionate really challenging to talk about loving in terms of management of business. We don't usually do that. We think that's our personal life. That's not business. But I think when you're exiting someone from the business, which is good HR speak, we don't say firing now, we say exiting. But when someone's leaving involuntarily, doing it in a way which shows them respect and has a lot of compassion costs you nothing and helps the whole team have less guilt about what happened. Because you won't, you know, the whole team will feel guilty when someone leaves. It's not only that it costs you nothing, it saves you a whole lot. It can, it can. But but I think everyone understands that. Everyone understands that an employee that had a bad experience is a bad ambassador for the brand, for the company. But it's not as easy. What gets in the way of, of a healthy separation like that? 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I think taking things personally, and we mentioned that before, but I think um, trying to, to help someone exit in a way that they're not taking it overly personally and you're not taking it over personally as a manager is really important. So giving them an opportunity to understand why they're leaving. And people get angry when they don't understand why they're leaving. They feel like no one's talked to me. Why haven't you ever mentioned this before? So ensuring that you have enough, you know, informal pre-dialogue so that no one, no one should ever be surprised that they're being exited from a company unless you're, you know, I mean, sometimes you're in a redundancy situation where yeah. that can't be done. But if it's just a situation about performance, no one should be surprised. So not everyone is very self-aware. Sometimes you have performance conversations with people and they think, well, yeah, you talked to me about it, but I didn't realize how serious it was. So having performance conversations that gently escalate so that people understand, listen, we need to have a really serious conversation. And then they don't have to agree with you necessarily. They can disagree. They can say, well, my opinion of how I did on this was X, your opinion is Y. And that's okay. You don't have to force them to agree with you, but you can just say, in this situation, I'm really sorry, I don't see X, I see Y. You know, I was in a situation with someone once who was uh, in a role where they were providing an internal service to the company. Uh, They were in an IT support help desk role. They're opinion of how well they were serving their colleagues was quite high. The feedback from the colleagues was quite poor. So in those situations, you share that feedback with them, you know, in a way to sort of say, listen, here's what people expect and here's what they're getting. There's a gap, right? You give them the opportunity to close that gap. It doesn't happen. Then when you're having the exit conversation, you can say, that person says, I believe I've fulfilled it. And you say, well, I don't believe you have, and here's why. They need to understand why you hold the opinion you hold, even if they disagree with you. I think sometimes people make the mistake of feeling like you have to have agreement. You don't. You just have to have clarity. And clarity, I think, is is the essence of a, of a good conversation like that. They just need to understand why you hold the opinion you hold, even if they disagree with the opinion. And trying to force the other person to agree with you, I think, can be unnecessarily painful. 
So giving them clarity, really making sure that they're not being let go for an unfair reason. You know, you're only doing this because I complained about my, my manager last month. You're only doing this because um, I said I was planning on having a baby in six months. And this is, you know, discrimination. Or you're only doing it because I'm the only, only person on the team who's Spanish and they're all French and the French people don't like me. And it's just about me being Spanish. Yeah. So, you know, you need to have that conversation. They need to understand that they're not being let go for an unfair reason. And as a manager, you need to make sure you're not consciously yeah. or unconsciously letting them go for an unfair reason because that's not good practice. But they need to understand, listen, there's a gap. Here's where my gap is. Here's why I'm not interested in investing any more time and energy with you closing that gap. And you just have to be honest and say that, listen, yes, absolutely. If we threw another six months of this or another eight months at it, we might be able to close the gap, but I'm not willing to make that investment. That's a business choice I'm making, you know, and it's not about you as a person. You know, you've got lots of friends here. I really respect and give them what you respect about them as a person, but say, this gap, as a business person, I'm not willing to invest in closing that gap anymore. So I think it, it is giving them that clarity, giving them that opportunity to be heard. The worst thing, I think, is sometimes shutting people down. You know, they might need to talk at you for 20 minutes and you just need to sit there and be quiet and let them talk at you for 20 minutes. And again, that's about being respectful. It could be the only time they got to do that. Yeah, yeah. And they may say all sorts of things that are hurtful about you or hurtful about other people in the company because they're angry. But you know what? So what? They're angry. Let them let them have their moment. Don't respond to everything they're saying. Just let them have their moment. If you're the person who's uh, who's uh, having to let someone go, mm-hmm. then like you don't have to be you don't have to win that argument eventually. No. You don't have to be right for one less time. You don't have to find that agreement. You've already made the decision. Yeah. You know, at least give them the feeling that they have been held. Exactly. And that's really important. I think it, it so often, you know, those situations can go wrong when the manager is is trying desperately to win the argument. And you don't have to win the argument. You're the person with all the power. <laughs> you wow. know, you don't have to hammer it home to them. They just have to feel fairly heard. They need to understand the fair reason that they're leaving, that they need the opportunity to to say their piece. And then they need to know what's going to happen. You need to give them a story. And, you know, we talked about this before. They're, they're going to have to walk out of that room and they're going to have to go home, maybe tell their wife, you know what? I don't know how we're going to pay the mortgage next month because I've just been fired. Or they're going to have to go to the pub with their friend after work and say, you know what? I'm not working here anymore. All my friends work in this company. I don't have any friends outside of this company. They're going to have to go to the pub and they're going to tell all of their friends that guess what, I'm not going to be showing up at work on Monday. And you're all my friends. You're my entire social network. So taking some time in that meeting to say, okay, what's the message going to be? What are we going to tell people? What do you want to tell the team about this process for how you're leaving and why you're leaving? And agree the story with them. Let them think about it. Maybe they need to go away and think about it and come back to you. But help them frame the story that they're going to tell so that when they leave and they talk to people, they've got a positive story. They've got a way to frame it. I mean, that might sound really trite, like what's the positive story, I've just been fired, but there's always a way to frame it. It can be, you know what, I came into this job thinking that I was going to have the opportunity to, you know, sell into the international market. I was really excited. I was going to go to Germany. And then I've realized, actually, you know what, 
I don't like traveling and I don't really like the selling conversation. I'd much rather be in an account management follow-up role. And, you know, it wasn't for me. What is it that, it, you know, what's that story so that they can frame it in a way that isn't I failed, but actually I made the wrong choice and now I'm going to pivot and make a better choice. What can an employer do in order to better support an employee that had been let go? Yeah, so I think there's, there's classic things like saying, agreeing or giving them some assurance of what will happen when you reference, right? So again, referencing, you have to be careful. You can't say anything that's misleading legally that could get you into trouble, but that doesn't mean there's nothing you can say, right? And again, there's usually something you can say about someone which is constructive. And what you can do is give them that and say, you know what, listen, at a certain point, someone's going to reference you. And here's what I'm prepared to say in the reference, which will be supportive. And here's what I'm prepared to say if I'm asked directly about what worked and what didn't work. And you can find a way to do that. That's really constructive. I've been in situations where I've referenced someone who didn't, um, for example, survive at a job. And I've said to the referee really clearly, who's going to manage this person? And the referee has said, well, you know what, I'm managing them. And I said, okay, great. If you want them to be successful, here are some things that this person needs to work on that will help them be successful. You could be aware of when you're managing them. So there's ways you can be constructive in the reference, which isn't saying to the other person, don't hire them, because it's not your job to say that. You don't know. They could be successful in another context. But help the new manager understand what are the things that you observe that would help the other person be successful. So agree the reference. Like I said, as much as you can, try and agree the message and the story that's going to go out there for their colleagues and the team to help them save face. I think that's really important. So framing it for them, they'll say, listen, even though this didn't work out for you, you got this from it. You got that from it. You know, and maybe it wasn't right for you to be in a selling role, but look at everything you learned about client relationships. Yeah. You know, so if you do want to go into an account management role, you'll take that forward. Another tip you gave me is uh, an organization should have uh, an alumni group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the alumni group is a great idea. And it's a way, it's really good for recruitment because people will refer to you if you exit people well they'll they'll still refer people back to you for hiring but also again it's that whole survivor guilt thing with the rest of the team whereas if they can see that people stay friends of the family they stay part of the family then they they'll feel better treated it, it's an interesting it's they'll, of, they'll feel less guilty about their friend leaving the company it's a bit of aftertaste yeah. um and the other thing you said is a respectable farewell mm-hmm. um like yeah. physical, tangible closure. Yeah. These kind of rituals are really important. And it's funny, you know, if you read the classic change management books, um, you know, like the John Carter books, he'll talk a lot about change management, how you need to bookend a change process with an opening celebration and a grieving celebration for whatever it is you're losing that's changing. And even though that sounds very like real like HR speak, mm-hmm. um, it actually makes a really big difference for people to have that sense of closure. You know, go for drinks with the team, have a card, have a gift, even if you have to do it offsite a week later. You know, if they're not comfortable coming back in the office, that's fine. You know, but do it. It's really important for everybody. It's huge because sometimes you don't know what the other people know. Yeah. And you carry your narrative and, and your hurt, but you're also carrying what other people might be thinking. So mm-hmm. being in a room with your colleagues and peers and having hearing someone say something, you're like, okay, at least we're in alignment about that. Yeah. And it also saves you having 40 different conversations. 
uh, which is process. super painful. So even if the circumstances seem dire and it's not the, uh, the, the happy farewell you'd have wanted it to be, as an employer, you'll be doing a huge service to everyone by, by finding a way to wrap up things. You don't have to be uh, individually responsible for producing that thing. Delegate it, fine, but provide that person who's leaving the company this type of uh, this type of opportunity. Well, ideally, they're a good friend should organize it. I mean, most people have at least one good friend at work, and you should say to that person, "Listen, here's a budget, whatever. Mm. Here's fifty pounds. Get a present, get some drinks together. Let's organize it." And remind people when they're leaving that those networks that they make, so the people that they've met working in this company, will be networks that they can use the rest of their life. You know, and those professional networks will help you get your next job. They might help you get your job that's two or three jobs down the line. They might be the people on the end of the phone that you could call for advice when you really need yeah. it. So they need an opportunity to keep all those networks going. So that exit process, when they're feeling like, oh, I don't think I want to go for drinks, we're saying, listen, it's really important. You know, it's important for you. It'll help you in your next stage. Yeah. Um, think about that. What can an employee who's losing their job for whatever reason do in order to A, exit better, mm-hmm. B, better set up uh, for the next job, and three, recover wholesomely as a person? I think it's, again, doing a reflection process and asking for feedback. So saying to the people that you worked with, having a mo- taking a moment to think, what did I learn from this job? What were my accomplishments? Even just so you can add them to your CV. You know, everyone doing a CV now, you know, you don't just list what you did, you list what you accomplished. So having a process where you think, actually, I did this. And, um, you know, I mentioned Dan Pink earlier. He's got a, I think, a website tool they've set up that's called I Did This for exactly this reason. So it's like once a week, go in and make a log of just an Excel sheet. You know, what did I do? What were my accomplishments this week? Just as a way for gratitude of, of acknowledging for yourself, hey, you know, I'm making progress. I'm doing stuff. So I think when you leave, do that. Make yourself your I Did This list. Uh, say to your colleagues, you know, I'm trying to prepare for my next round of interviews. What, what are the stories you think I should tell? You know, what were the moments? What were the real highlights of when we worked together? Because you need those stories to come to life when you're in your next interview. And ask people for that feedback. Don't be scared. Don't feel like that's a really egotistical thing to do. People want to help you, you know, and allow other people to be generous with you. They want to do that. That's a gift that they're going to feel better having given you. So you're at a moment where you're being vulnerable. It's okay. Let yourself be a little bit vulnerable. Ask people for that feedback. And then use that to create your positive stories. The stories you tell yourself are the most powerful ones, you know, and and those are the stories that are going to get you your next job. Because when someone says to you, you know, what is it that you love about what you do? If you're feeling negative about your job and you can't come up with anything, you need to really reframe that narrative. You need to say, God, there's something. There's a reason why I took, what was the reason I took this job to begin with? And you got to go back and you think, God, I took this job actually because I'm really passionate about this industry or this product that they're trying to make you know and I I think that I was telling you this story earlier you know one of the reasons I work in architecture for HR was when I was 12 and dreaming about building my own house right I have that passion inside of me so even if I get to the point where I'm kind of done with this job I haven't lost that passion for building that that's still inside of me so figure out what your positive frames are and and write those stories down ask for feedback from your friends you know, ask them to help you do mock interviews. That's a really nice thing that well, ex-colleagues could do with you as well. And say, take a look at my CV for me. What's missing off there? What else could I add in there? 
you know, what other skills do you think I, I, you know, I'm missing? Get feedback. People will give you feedback on your CV. Practice questions with them. Practice interviews with them. Um, those can be really powerful. You know, people will give you that feedback. Are you telling the right stories? Another um, confidence-building exercise you can do while exiting that solves for you and also solves for the company, startups, fast-moving organizations have a lot of um, information retention issues, right. documenting, saving it. Yeah. If you can create a robust, detailed handover document, A, you're building your portfolio as you're doing it. B, you're probably demonstrating to your higher-ups the length of the, of the work you've done for them, which mm-hmm. they're probably not aware of. Yeah. And see you setting up the next person uh, for that role. So I think that's super, super huge and so hard to do. Yeah. You just, you feel everything that that company represents could be like trigger some sort of a response. And you don't take it, do it offline, do it in a cafe, find the time, put it into a document, share the document with the people who's involved in your work, yeah. tell them why it's there, give them the opportunity to review that document with you add stuff to it Mm. and more often than not they'll be surprised oh wow i didn't know you did that thank you so much for putting that out because otherwise we would have forgotten the other thing is you can use that to negotiate some extra notice period (laughs) i would say you know if they're saying to you oh you know we want you to leave on monday you can say actually a really powerful thing i could do for you is document x y and z that i did or these client relationships or you you know whatever it is you held you say listen why don't you put me on gardening leave Leave me at home for two weeks. That's how long it's going to take me to do this. Uh, at the end of it, I will produce X document for you. So it could also, in, in those leaving moments, you really want to be trying to get as much cash as you can because you're trying to secure yourself before your next job. So negotiating that, even if you do it off-site, yeah. um, can be a really great way to try and get a couple extra weeks pay as well, which I think is worth thinking about. Do you think HR should be involved in, in escalations earlier, in, in conflict resolution within work? Oh, yeah. I mean, a big part of what a really good um, HR function will do for any company is what I talked about earlier with talent development. So actually, really good HR people are in there having talent conversations all the time, right? From, from knowing people's career. The only If the only time you're meeting your HR department is when you're about to be fired, that's a pretty bad sign about your HR department. That's not what a good HR team is there to do, right? So you should be having talent conversations with people all the way along. You should understand what their challenges are. You should be giving, helping, you know, the coaching process with their manager. You're not their manager as an HR person, right? But you're there to help empower the manager, make sure those conversations are happening. People come to me all the time to ask for advice. You know, I don't know how to have this conversation with my manager. How should I be doing it? And I give people lots of coaching, you know, for how to handle those kind of difficult conversations with their managers. Also lots of coaching conversations if their performance is going off track. So they might come to me and say, you know what, I've just had a really difficult conversation about my performance. I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. How do I get more information? How do I deal with this? So I'll coach people a lot informally through that as well. And I I think that's a really powerful thing that that could be done. You mentioned disruption in HR and disruption comes with friction and friction can come with confrontation. And it could be that the HR professionals, the people operation professionals are the human shields in a business when faced complicated, difficult decisions. And that's heightened exposure to the hardest, nastiest parts of the business. Mm-hmm. How do you protect yourself? How do you heal and recover from days? What can people learn from how you've learned to cope? 
you certainly need to be a pretty resilient person to go into this sort of role, especially the way that I do HR involves a lot of change management. And people are always very unsettled when change is happening. So you do need to have really good personal boundaries. I think that's really important. You need to be able to separate um, separate work, keep work in its box. And it's unfair uh, that I'm trying to uh, um, squeeze decades of uh, experience into a 90-minute podcast. Thank you so, so much for coming over on a Saturday morning. Um, <laughs> this has been tremendously helpful. And with that, we're signing off. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just $60, bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.